the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Today on the podcast, we consider the vexing question of masks. And my particular focus here is mask mandates. Obviously, we have lived through, in different countries across the world, varying formations of mask mandates. And frequently, in evangelical circles and Christian circles, we've had discussion about masks, and the discussion has typically boiled down to really one of two positions— On the side of wearing masks and following mask mandates, many evangelicals have argued basically as follows. We should love our neighbor as the second greatest commandment, and so wearing masks is a way to love our neighbor because it can potentially, at the very least, it's argued, reduce transmission of the coronavirus. In addition, we should, according to Romans 13, submit to government. And so if the government tells us to do something, unless it absolutely violates the Christian faith, so the argument goes, then we should follow the government. We should do what the government asks of us as believers. That's a crucial part of our witness. In stating these two tenets of the pro-mask philosophy of wearing a mask when there is a mask mandate issued, I am not offering comment at this point yet. I will do so later in this podcast. This podcast is really a companion podcast to last week's where we talked about vaccine mandates, and I took a very clear line against vaccine mandates. In other words, that Christians must and are compelled to get the vaccine if, for example, their employer or at some point if the government mandates that they do so. This is not a theoretical issue. As many of you know, I got a good bit of feedback, most of it very positive, from last week's episode. Many people are facing mask mandates, in particular at their work, and they are, as Christians, being told that they need to get vaccinated uh, regardless of their own considerations, regardless of their theology, their convictions. On it goes. So these are not theoretical matters, and this week's topic, very much related to last week's, about masks, and in particular mask mandates, is not theoretical either. People have faced this one, and we, I'm guessing, in at least different places in America and beyond, will face this one. The evangelical conversation has typically been dominated by the love your neighbor and submit to the government argument. Then there is a different position. The second position has basically been no. (laughs) It's basically been The government cannot tell me what to do. I hate wearing a mask, and I'm not going to. Let me say at the outset of this podcast that I understand both of those positions, and I think that we need to think through this carefully. I think that both sides raise something that must be thought through as a Christian from the Word of God. I don't think one side has every ounce of sense and the other side has none. 
I think that there are hard issues that we are facing here, and there are Christians who agree over a great deal who find themselves on different sides of these issues. So let that be said. My goal here is not to tell you once and for all time, as if I could do that, which is right, which position is absolutely, unequivocally right. My goal on this particular podcast is to try to help Christians think through mask mandates. Now, later on, I'll give you some further personal thoughts about what I think about masks. This isn't going to be a podcast about the epidemiology behind masks. I'm not going to try to do a deep dive in all the articles and the back-and-forth online conversation about masks. I'm not going to try to cite all sorts of doctors on this issue. That is a, a valuable and worthwhile exercise for you as a Christian to undertake, to think through the utility of masks. So I support that, and I commend that, again, at the outset. I guess we're a minute four, so we're not quite at the outset here, but early in this podcast. But that's not what I'm doing here. So if you want a definitive word on whether masks assuredly work and prevent transmission of viruses like COVID, you may well come away from this podcast disappointed because I'm not even trying to provide that kind of overview and that kind of guidance. I myself, as a theologian, frankly, read widely on these matters, and I tried to give all sides a hearing. That's something I regularly do, but I am not going to try to settle that question. What I want to think through here, again, in this episode, is whether Christians must follow mask mandates. That is the question I am asking and seeking to answer as best I can from Scripture, and then building from Scripture to address the gray areas and hard questions of this crazy mixed-up time we call 2021 in America and beyond. So don't think yours very truly is going to tell you once and for all time if masks work. I'll give you a few thoughts there later on. Do think with me as we go at rapid-fire pace, as we often do on the antithesis, through a number of texts. Our goal is ultimately to think hard about a theology of the body, to build a theology of the body from Scripture. We're not going to address everything. We can't do it comprehensively, but we can at least go a lot further down the field, I believe, than Christians often have, and Christians have regarding this conversation over masks. We tend to just militarize up, get on our different sides, and then shut the conversation down. And I haven't, frankly, seen uh, many folks engage a number of texts that may not directly, of course, answer the question of masks, but I do think speak into our theology of the body and our theology of the body with respect to authorities, civil authorities, governmental authorities, and so on. There's a lot in Scripture that I want to turn to now that I actually think can help to frame a theology of the body, and when you have a theology of the body, then you are much better queued up to try to address the hard questions that we all face today, and frankly, that we end up answering in slightly different ways. I want to preserve charity where we do, 
but I also want to do my very small part as a theologian to try to dig into the biblical text to equip the church on these matters as we will very likely face further mandates and measures in days ahead. Let's do that now. Look with me at Genesis 4. Genesis 4. If you want more on a theology of the body, I'll say this as well. You could pick up my book, Reenchanting Humanity, that came out just at the end of 2019. Reenchanting Humanity gives a theology of the body, and so it has some serious, hopefully, theological and doctrinal resources culled from the scripture on these matters. So that could frame things for you as well. Genesis 4, 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Why in a discussion of mask mandates go to the killing of Abel by Cain? Because what we see right on the heels of the fall, a real historical fall by a real historical Adam, is that God's sentence of judgment on the human race is in effect. And the form that sin takes just after Adam and Eve have sinned against the Lord and obviously then had kids, had Cain and Abel, is the sin of one brother abusing the other brother's body. Genesis 4 teaches us numerous truths that we could unpack, but for our purposes, what we see is that the sacredness of the human body is violated directly following the fall in biblical chronological terms. Of course, there's a several decade period, two decade period or something like this, 15 years, I don't know exactly how long, from Eve having Cain and Abel and the boys growing up and then working in the field. But in chronological terms, right after Genesis 3 and the presentation of a real fall comes the violation of the body. The voice of your brother's blood, the Lord says to Cain, cries out. It's striking for us that the first sin leads to this second major instance of sin in which the sanctity of the body is violated. We see that the curse, the fall, uh, has major bodily effects. What do Adam and Eve do in Genesis 3 right after they eat the forbidden fruit and the Lord shows up to pronounce judgment on them? They try to hide themselves. There is a bodily effect that is, frankly, in, in, in our perspective, a little bit hard to account for, but it's real. There are bodily effects of the fall. Adam and Eve have been given a body by the Lord. They are each made in the image of God, and so they have tremendous dignity and worth as those made by God for God to know God. And yet, they do not use their body as they should, do they? They use their body to sin against the Lord, following the anti-wisdom of the serpent of Satan in Genesis 3. So they have already put their body to wrong use. There was a mandate from the Lord, from their creator, to steward their body well. The Lord was their authority, is their authority. Adam and Eve did not follow right authority. They did not grant 
jurisdiction, to the right sovereign, to the right influence, if you will. Instead, what Adam and Eve do is they grant authority to one who has no authority in Eden and deserves no authority and is actively trying to undo the authority of the creator God, the true God. So we have a a fall that has profound bodily implications. It is literally, according to Genesis 3, the eating of fruit. So taking what is forbidden into the body. And that results in a bodily curse, death, as we see in Genesis 3. And now in Genesis 4, moving back to this initial text, we see that sin taking root in the second generation of humanity has tremendous bodily effects. When Cain is enraged by his brother, he doesn't hurl words at him, uh, he doesn't wish bad things for him, he doesn't even try to ruin uh, Abel's sacrifices, which are so angering Cain. What Cain does is he, he takes authority over Abel's body, authority he does not possess, and he destroys Abel's life. What I want to do here, then, is is build along these lines, and mark this. Mark this if you're tracking with me, that God has made the body, but in a sinful world, people will take authority over the body that is not theirs. That's really the first truth we see here. Let's move ahead, and we'll go at a little quicker pace here. In Exodus 20.15, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, the Eighth Commandment is this. Thou shalt not steal. You shall not steal. We sometimes gloss over the Ten Commandments as modern Christians. We we think of them as a straightforward forbidding, a prohibition, and nothing more. But actually, if you start to think about what this principle entails, you recognize it is not only a prohibition, it is also a delineation of what is good and right according to the Lord. If God gives to someone else, you and I, if we are hearing this, of course, in the days of Moses, do not have authority, do not have jurisdiction to take what is theirs. We cannot steal from them. They cannot steal from us. And this principle, of course, echoes into our time. We cannot steal from others. We cannot take what is theirs just because we want it. Why? Well, embedded in the Eighth Commandment of the Ten Commandments is the idea that if you have property, if God in his providence has blessed you with these possessions, then they are yours. By extension, if you have property, if you have a house, if you have land, that is yours. Your neighbor cannot glance over his fence, looking through his fruit trees at yours, and think, "Eh, I like his, his property better than mine. I think I'll just go take it. That is absolutely wrong, according to the Ten Commandments. What does that then teach us? Well, As Walter Kaiser, a famous Old Testament scholar, judiciously so, says, with this command, not only was the principle of individual ownership recognized, but it also thereby regarded as criminal, all attempts to take that property from a person in a fraudulent way and to then regard it as one's own. Kaiser wrote this in an article entitled, Ownership and Property in the Old Testament 
economy. Uh, it is presented on the website of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. Okay, so second text that we've gone to, the Eighth Commandment of the Ten Commandments, shows us, yes, that it is wrong to steal, as you and I learned about in Sunday school, if we grew up in Sunday school, but also in a much a uh, bigger theological sense, expanding this, thinking this principle through. It shows us that ancient Israel had a strong theology of what we could call property rights, of personal possessions, yes, but of property rights. If God has given you your allotment, if God has given you these material goods, they are yours. So there is a right understanding of ownership that the Bible is teaching us even when we might not be primed to expect it. You say, what does this have to do with masks? Well, this shows us that the Scripture has clear teaching explicitly and also implicitly that frames a right understanding of personal stewardship, such that what we have been given by God is ours. It is not someone else's to take. That is true of our body. It is wrong for someone else uh, in, in at least most circumstances, to take our life, and it is wrong for someone to take what is ours in most circumstances as well. We could think of some qualifications. If we've done something evil, if we're attacking people, trying to murder them, then our life can be taken, frankly. Uh, or if we uh, have forfeited our right to property, someone can take it. Of course, that's not stealing anymore, but we have, we have broader conversations that we can have about these principles. Nonetheless, we see that Scripture teaches us that our body is sacred, it's ours to steward for God's glory, and even that our possessions, and by extension our property, is sacred. It is a gift of God from us. It is not, it is not owned by the collective. It is not owned by everybody. We have our own allotment from the Lord. It may be tiny. It may be massive. God gives to all as he sees fit. We know from Scripture that there are different characters who have very little, including even the Son of Man who has no place to lay his head, Jesus teaches in Luke 9.58. We also know of Job, who was a righteous man, the most righteous man of his day, and had tremendous possessions. And there was no problem there. There was no moral failing on his part. That, that was the direct blessing of God on Job. In all cases, though, what is from God is given by God for the glory of God. And it is not owned by any kind of social collective. It is owned by us. And going back to the body, our body is not owned by some sort of public corporation. Our body has been made by God. We were intimately formed in our mother's womb. And now, as we develop and grow into adulthood, we have our own body and our own life to steward. We are not directed by a government, by an outside authority, in what to do. In fundamental terms, the local church, of course, shapes and directs us in different ways. But even there, your elders in the local church, I'm bleeding over into the New Testament here, no pun intended, do not have authority to tell you on a minute-by-minute basis what you should be doing outside of exceptional cases of sin. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's leave off and let's keep building. Let's keep building a biblical theology of the body 
aiming toward a right understanding of mask mandates. Let's skip ahead to the New Testament. There's so much ground we could cover. But in John 21, 15 to 19, we have a powerful reminder from Christ to Peter following the betrayal of Christ by Peter in the moments of the crucifixion and then following that, the resurrection. And now there's this reunion between Christ and Peter. And this is what Jesus says to Peter. Feed my sheep, John 21, 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. This passage reminds us of the notes that we were raising and hearing in the Genesis passage. Why pick this one out? Because it is very clear in John 21.18, that it is not a positive reality in the mind of Jesus that Peter will stretch out his hands, referring uh, to his mode of death, and be dressed by another, that's no positive thing, again, and then be carried where you do not want to go. Peter is going to be murdered. He's going to be martyred for Christ, crucified upside down, it seems, for the glory of Christ, for the name of Christ. And this is not a happy thing in human terms. It is going to test Peter, and indeed, this is truly the ultimate honor that Peter could enjoy in the service of Christ. Peter's death, the one who betrayed Christ, the one who, who did not own up to following Christ, is actually going to be remarkably like Christ's death. It is not, of course, in any form atoning. It, it cannot remit Peter's sin nor anyone else's sin. And so while Peter dies in the, in the example, the mold of Jesus, there is in no sense Peter dying as Christ dies in terms of atonement. What Jesus is teaching here, then, is that it is a negative thing to experience what Peter is going to experience and did experience in dying. It is a negative thing for somebody to dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is a passage that is not explicitly about how you handle stewardship of the body vis-a-vis -vis government mandates. Let that be said. But if we're paying attention all throughout Scripture, if our eyes are opened and our mind is sharp, we will see that there is all sorts of doctrinal formation and spiritual shaping going on where we don't expect it. And there are singular verses that pack thunder in them in terms of teaching us the truth God wants us to know. And this is one of them. This shows us that a properly biblical theology of the body includes the idea that it is a negative reality for someone to take control of your body, and especially to put you to death. Verse 19, of course, makes clear that the key idea here is 
the death that Peter is going to die. It's not just that somebody's going to dress him and carry him where he doesn't want to go. It's that he's going to die. And his death is explicitly, verse 19 makes clear, to glorify God. Just remember that as a quick aside here. There are deaths that glorify God. The death of the Christian, the Christian following the will of God, the obedient Christian, is a God-glorifying death. So we are not those who see no value in death. Death is the last enemy. Death is terrible. And yet, death, even death, is a vessel of glorification, of honoring God. We do not have the same theology of death, or if you want in broader terms, the same understanding of death that the world has. And if you are a true believer— not a fake professing Christian, then your death is to be a means of glorification of God. And your understanding of death is altogether different than an unbeliever's. I said this in the previous podcast, but I want to repeat it. We don't think about life and death and health and the body and the government the way that unbelievers think. There are going to be points of overlap, of course. Of course there are. And in fact, there's going to be a spectrum with unbelievers, depending on what they believe. But fundamentally, we're not all the same. If you're a Christian, there should be and even must be points of profound disagreement with the world. There are going to be, for the true Christian numerous instances where you say, okay, it looks like you and I agree to the unbeliever, but wow, you don't have the theology of death that I have. We understand death to be a means of glorification in right terms of our great God. John 21 in sum shows us that it is a negative thing for someone to take over your body and compel you to do things that you don't want to do. That's not something you are indifferent to. That's something that Christ presents in negative terms, though he makes very clear that God is going to redeem that negative, profoundly negative experience. Let's move ahead to another passage. 1 Corinthians 7, here we learn much more about the body. We learn in the context of marriage from the Apostle Paul that, 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, in sexual terms, parenthetically, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, this fills out our theology of the body for those who are married. Many of us are called to marriage. Marriage is, for most Christians, uh, their normative experience in life. Most people are called to marriage. And so if you are called to marriage, you are actually, the Apostle Paul teaches here, relinquishing authority over your own body. You're doing so, though, again, not to a Marxist collective, not to everybody, not to everybody in the church, even, for Christians, not to the elders. Who are you giving authority over your own body to? To one person, your spouse. The wife gives authority, to, to a degree at least, over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body, to a degree at least, to the wife. 
I say to a degree because this doesn't mean that if a husband has a, a, a list of demands that uh, he can then enforce them uh, without any discussion on the wife. And if the wife has preferences and desires with regard to the husband's body, she can simply speak them into the air in his presence, and he must follow along with them. We, of course, need to bring into other teaching of the Apostle Paul about headship and submission here, but here the Apostle Paul is making very clear that these two people in the covenant of marriage have given up their own authority over their body, and now there is someone else to think about with respect to their body, even to the extent that the the desires, the will, the hopes of their spouse factors in pretty significantly, we can say, to the way they live, to the way they think, and of course with special reference to sex. There's a much broader discussion here that we could have that I'm not going to have, but even this limited discussion of 1 Corinthians 7, 4, and 5 shows us that we do cede authority of our body to our spouse, and again, if we use the, the kind of uh, mechanism that we employed with regard to the Eighth Commandment, we see that there is much taught here that we might miss initially. What I mean is this. If you, as a spouse, do not have authority over your own body in an ultimate way, but now share in that arrangement with your husband or wife, by extension that means that it is only your husband or wife who has that right, who has that role in your life. And that means, as I said a few minutes ago, that others do not have that authority. No one beyond your husband or wife has any such authority over you. No one can speak into, in an authoritative way, your marriage and tell you what you need to do as husband and wife in a bodily sense. There can, of course, be those who speak into your marriage and help you and counsel you and walk through the dynamics of uh, Christian marriage in a fallen world. That's a very positive reality. We need that. We all do at some level. But fundamentally, if your spouse has authority marked here in the Word of God, others do not have that authority. So to have this shared stewardship from God, all of this, of course, is under the absolute umbrella of divine authority. I'll talk more about that in just a minute means that that is a very sacred reality, and others don't have it. The government doesn't have it. Your elders don't have it. Your employer doesn't have it. Your spouse actually does have it. It doesn't mean that they can tell you what to do simply by saying something. It does mean that there is this marriage relationship where, in this covenantal form, you have each come together, and now you are not your own. You are one flesh. Let's move ahead, or actually back, to 1 Corinthians 6, so one chapter prior, and let's think about another principle here. 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Perhaps the most important couple verses in the New Testament regarding a theology of the body. What do we learn here? We learn here that 
the believer, and only the believer, is a temple of the Holy Spirit in a bodily sense. There's a lot to say about temple language throughout the scripture. What it basically means is the site of worship, the place where God meets with his people. So in the New Covenant, we don't go to a place, and and that is the temple. We, our body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul teaches here. This, by the way, corrects how we sometimes talk about local churches, more properly, church buildings. Church buildings in the New Covenant era are not a temple. They're not the place we go to meet with God in an Old Testamental sacrificial system sense. Instead, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the site where the worship of God takes place, and we are indwelt by God. God lives in us. God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Let me say here, as many of you will have experienced already who are Christians, that this is one of those biblical teachings that is hard to fully get your mind around. How does it actually play out that my body is indwelt by the Holy Spirit? It's hard to understand because it's a spiritual reality, but it is true. I don't mean that it is impossible to understand. We have the Holy Spirit from God in justifying faith through regeneration— We have crossed the line into the kingdom, and in that moment of regeneration, the Spirit quickens our heart, and then from there indwells us. And this all means that we have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were bought with a price, namely the life of Jesus Christ himself. Our very body has been bought back, as our soul has, by the death of Jesus Christ. And this means that our sin is atoned for, and this means that we are cleansed by Christ's blood, and that means that now we are an appropriate site of the indwelling presence of God, just like the Old Testament temple used to be, but in a much more heightened sense. Now, the place where God dwells with his people, or meets with his people, if you will, is not a building of any kind. It is fundamentally people. It is a person. We have been cleansed as vessels of worship by the atoning death of Jesus Christ. We have been brought to life through the resurrection of Christ, and now we're not our own. We are God's. So glorify God in your body. The context of 1 Corinthians 6 is sexual sin. It is sexual sin. And so that is what the Apostle Paul is especially referencing in this passage. You should not live as sinful Corinthians do, Paul is telling the church in ancient Corinth. You should not do what the pagans do. You should not do what unbelievers do. They are not bought with a price, to this moment at least that that they know. They are not presently a temple of the Holy Spirit. They are not a site of worship. They are not where God dwells. God does not dwell in the Holy Spirit with them. You, Corinthians, Paul is saying about 2,000 years ago, aren't your own. You're totally different from the Corinthians. Your body is a key way that you glorify God. Their body is how they glorify themselves. They are altogether different than you are. You're not the same. They have a totally 
different theology of the body, if you will, than you do. So you can't live like they do. You can't fall into the sexual sins that we know the ancient Corinthian church is falling into. You have to steer clear of those sins. You have to flee those sins. You have to flee ungodly lusts because you're not your own. God owns your body. If you were going to condense what I'm saying in this part of the podcast to a single formulation, it would be that. God owns your body. You have a stewardship of your body as a Christian. Absolutely. That's entrusted to you by God. That matters tremendously. Your body, as with your entire life, is given you by a gracious, loving, heavenly Father to steward. In other words, uh, to, to, to use to the glory of God. And you're responsible for caring for your body. You're responsible for handling your body well. You're responsible for taking care of your body. You're responsible for presenting your body in a, in a righteous way. You're responsible, we could have a whole podcast on modesty, something that is a major topic today. You're responsible for presenting yourself in a modest way. You're not at all, again, like the Corinthians. Unbelievers can show their body off. Unbelievers, men or women alike, can use their body to draw attention, uh, to advance in the world, to get rich, to get wealthy, to get whatever it is they want, to get security as, as the end they are pursuing. You can't do that. You are called to use your body in a totally different way, and part of that is modesty, because your body, unlike the body of the pagan, is a temple. So God owns your body, we're learning here in 1 Corinthians 6, in summary, and that means that we should steward our body, manage it well, use it well, every minute we have on the earth. Last text, and then we move to some synthesis, some application. Matthew twenty six twenty six, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take Eat, this is my body. We've heard the death of Christ often referenced in conversations over mask mandates. This is an incredibly powerful moment in the life and ministry and even work, understood in the right terms, of Jesus Christ. He's just about to go and die on the cross. He is presenting the Lord's Supper as the fulfillment of Old Testament Passover. He himself is the the sacrificial lamb whose blood will cleanse his people and enable the angel of death, not just in a temporal sense, on one night, but for all time, for all eternity, to pass over his people. So if you are covered by Christ the greater lamb, the angel of death will never attack you. What a thought that is. What we would take away from this beyond atonement theology, beyond our discussions of the Lord's Supper, is that Jesus willingly gives his body for the sake of others. This isn't just a a moment where he's saying something about a piece of bread. He's teaching his people that he is going to the cross for them. He's giving up his body willingly for their good in order to glorify the Father, the one who has sent him, the one whose will he is fulfilling every minute of his earthly life. So Jesus willingly gives up his body for others. 
That is a glorious truth we could spend hours, <laughs> days, weeks, and months talking about. What I just want to say quickly here, though, is actually that you need to be careful about how you apply this with regard to government mandates in our day and age. Jesus gives up his body. We should be willing to give up our body for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the mission of Christ. But that is not to be understood in the same terms as handing over stewardship of your body to the government. This is a fine distinction, a subtle technical point in theological terms. It matters tremendously. What I mean is this. You should not assume that because Christ willingly laid his life down and gave up his body to be broken on a Roman cross for our salvation, that anything governments would ask of you, you should automatically do. You should be willing to pay the price, the ultimate price, for the glory of God as a Christian if you are called to do so. So what I mean is, if you are in a difficult context and you are brought out in public for being a Christian— and it is either death, the, the murdering of you and your body for the glory of God, or it is renunciation of Christ. What should you do? Obviously, you know that I believe you should give up your body. In this sense, you have already yielded your body to God. <laughs> In more technical terms, you have understood that your body is not your own. It is the gift of God to you, and you are willing to pay the ultimate price in order to honor God. We should all, right now, at this moment, be ready for such an outcome, be ready for such a fate, for such a calling of God. In Petrine terms, the terms that we were discussing earlier between Peter and Christ in John 21. But willingly giving up your body for martyrdom in order to Honor God above all is not the same thing as handing over control of your body, not for the sake of martyrdom, to the government. There is, in point of fact, no New Testamental or biblical call to yield control and authority of your body to governmental authorities or to workplace authorities or even to church authorities as important as the jurisdiction in spiritual terms of the local church over all of us is, elders do not have authority to tell individual members to demand conformity to their decrees as elders that are not scriptural. So you haven't ceded general control of your body even to church authorities, important as they are, seriously as their leadership must always be taken for every believer. Let me then move our discussion as we draw to a close here into a few points of application and synthesis. Let me give them to you in rather rapid-fire fashion at the end of this podcast here. And we're building all of this from the groundwork we have laid thus far. First, our body is not our own, it's God's. God is the one ultimately, who has given us a body, who has let us live. He has let us have a body. He has let us have a bodily life. 
It has not always been easy for us. It will not always be easy for us, especially as we age in this life. And yet, fundamentally, the body is a gift of God. It is a kindness of God. So our body is not our own. We don't own it. God owns it. Second, under divine ownership, we are the stewards of our bodies. We are called to manage and use our body well to the glory of God. We're actually to see our body as a temple, to treat it, you could say, reverentially, not for our own good, not for our own purposes, not for our own renown, but for God's. If people in your community, if people at your workplace, if people at the gym see you caring well for your body, at least trying to, they should wonder at that, and in any conversation that would result, you should make clear, as much as you can, this kind of theology. Why are you trying to take care of yourself? Why are you trying to at least be healthy? Why are you trying to live as long as you can in responsible terms, reasonable terms? Because God has given you this life. The way this life is lived is only in a bodily form. It's not in a disembodied form. And you are treating your body as a temple. That's very different than you treating your body itself as an object of worship. As I've said numerous times already, that's another topic that could easily be a podcast. Many people around us want their bodies to be worshipped. That's not what we're affirming here. God may have given you um, a strong body, a beautiful body. We don't have to be um, blind to that in appropriate terms and pretend as if that doesn't exist. God has made the human body. As a Christian, we're not ashamed of our bodies. We're not ashamed of manhood. We're not ashamed of womanhood. Again, in appropriate terms, it's hard to even say these things in 2021 in a pornified era, a sexualized context, but we're not ashamed of the body. We want to steward it well, but the body is never for the Christian to be presented as an object of worship for others. You may be very attractive. You may not be considered attractive at all. That doesn't really matter. What matters is that you steward your body and you present it to point others to God because you're a steward. Third, we should submit to government as much as we can. Romans 13 directs us to this. See last week's podcast for more there. And we should furthermore love our neighbor as much as we can as Christians, including in the way we steward our body. You see that in Matthew 22, 34 to 39, the second greatest commandment, that is, is love of neighbor. So there are two important principles for today and for all time for Christians living in a fallen world. We're frequently going to find ourselves under unjust civil authority, and we need to have a posture of submitting to government as much as we can as believers. Romans 13, I believe that is the right way to understand and interpret Romans 13. And a major principle that shapes the way we live in this world as Christians is we want to do everything we can to love our neighbor. That's a huge part of obeying God by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. So let those two things regularly cycle through your mind and shape your behavior and shape your decisions and shape how your family lives, those two principles. Fourth, we need to say this as well. The government does not have jurisdiction over our bodies, nor does our neighbor. Very important to affirm point three, submit to government, 
love your neighbor. Very important to affirm point four. Government does not rule your body, nor does anyone else. You have, if you are married, granted some authority to your spouse. Your body is not your own. But beyond the context of marriage in human terms, no human person has jurisdiction over your body. Let me give uh, a, a quick analogy here, a little example. If the government mandated that you take a multivitamin every day, do you have to follow the multivitamin mandate? Let's say that this multivitamin is nothing more than a multivitamin. There is no kind of tinkering that has been done to the multivitamin uh, to accomplish some nefarious, unstated purpose. It is simply your standard issue multivitamin. And your government, I'm in America, people listen to this podcast beyond America, your government says you need to take this multivitamin every day. Just take one. It's just a little one. It's made by a perfectly trustworthy company. There's nothing else going on with the multivitamin in my own little exercise here. This is me, Owen Strand, speaking to you. Do you, as a Christian, need to take the multivitamin? Must you do so? Or does submitting to government require that? Romans 13. Or does love of neighbor, Matthew 22, call for you to do so? Call for every Christian without exception, at least in reasonable circumstances, everybody can swallow, perhaps, to take the multivitamin. The way that masks and mask mandates have been responded to by a good number of evangelicals in the last year or so would be to affirm that you should take the multivitamin because you should submit to government, Romans 13, and you should do anything you can to love your neighbor, putting them as much as you can out of harm's way. Well, the government could argue if you have a more healthy population, people who are taking their multivitamin, that will be better for everybody, whereas it's worse for everybody to be less healthy. Let's say this multivitamin has had proven effects. Masks, by the way, have not been proven to be effective in preventing transmission of COVID. There are different studies that you should consider. City Journal just did uh, a good, uh, fairly lengthy piece called Do Masks Work that I would commend to you. Do Masks Work, City Journal. There's a lot to think through there. As I said at the outset of this podcast, I'm not going to try to sort out whether masks work. I'm not going to try to answer that in a decisive, definitive way. But I am here to say that we have had masks presented to us, even in many Christian contexts, as a major way for us to love our neighbor. So let's extend this beyond masks, because masks are very controversial in Christian circles. Go to the multivitamin. Is loving your neighbor as a principle that which summons you to take the multivitamin in order that you would be healthier and then that everybody would be healthier? Isn't it good for everybody in a society be, to be healthy? Here's what I want you to understand. This is how I put this together, working from the text that we have already covered. The government cannot mandate that you would take a multivitamin. The government cannot mandate that. It can recommend that. It can encourage citizens to do that. I think it probably should not do much of that at all. That is not really a government's charge from God, 
and that is an unusual circumstance. But let's pretend the government recommends that you take a multivitamin. That is altogether different than the government demanding, mandating that you take a multivitamin. Even if a multivitamin were to improve your health and societal health, the government does not have such jurisdiction. The government has not been given that authority from God to demand what you must do with your body. Now, we know that the government is right to mandate that citizens not sinfully kill one another. And there's all kinds of distinctions, of course, between different kinds of deaths and how people kill one another. We know that going to war, in biblical terms, is not necessarily wrong. So there are instances, of course, where it is right to kill somebody. Or if somebody comes into your house, they are not a rightly constituted authority. No one has a right. This, this is all actually very much flowing together, if you're paying attention. No one has a right to come into your house and take ownership of your possessions or do any kind of harm to your family. They have no jurisdiction over your family. They are not a rightly constituted authority. No one has authority over your children to come in and demand how they will live into your home. If they try to do so, they are in the wrong, and you are in the right to stop them from doing so. There's a kind of pacifist strain that has gotten into the evangelical church, even the Reformed church today, but these principles must be taken back into account. Only those who have jurisdiction over our bodies can mandate what we do with our bodies. Husbands and wives do have uh, rightly constituted authority. 1 Corinthians 7, you need to understand that in right terms, but they do have authority over one another to a degree. Of course, fathers and mothers, mothers in particular, but fathers and mothers both, have to steward the lives and the bodies of their children well. That is a calling from God. That is what they must do. That's not optional. In fact, to not steward your child's body well is to be outside of the will of God, to disobey God. All this to say, you must understand who has jurisdiction scripturally and in sound thought that flows from scripture over your body. And the government cannot mandate what you do to make your body healthier. The government can prevent you from wrongfully killing others. The government can institute consequences when that happens, and that is right. But the government cannot tell you what diet to eat. The government cannot even tell you how you should handle preventing uh, sickness, illness. The government can't mandate a certain treatment of the common cold. Forget COVID. Forget all the, the discussion over COVID, all the heated uh, places that whole fracas goes. Government can't tell you, should not tell you in biblical terms, how you handle cold season. But many Christians are getting sloppy on these matters and are interpreting Romans 13 and Matthew 22 and other texts to teach us, they say, that the government can. Fifth, mask mandates put us in a tricky position today because they're not life-threatening. And so it seems like if there's something we can do to help societally, then we must do it. So we're in a tricky position, aren't we? You feel that? At least many of you do. I feel it. Pastors certainly feel it, as their congregations are sharply divided in different cases over mask mandates. This leads to point six. 
we as Christians must care hugely about loss of bodily stewardship. It is not in any sense a small, light, and glancing thing to give others stewardship or authority or control of our body in some measure that God has not granted to them rightly. John 21 uh, comes back into mind here. It is not a good thing that others would dress Peter. It is not a good thing that others would carry him where he does not want to go. We as Christians are not being obstinate anarchist right-wingers if we want to continue stewarding our body under the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing that our body is a gift of God and God owns our body, we are not wrong to want to steward our body well. We must do that. We must retain authority and ownership, in human terms that is, of our body. Even if the government wants to do something good, like mandate a multivitamin that actually does have positive effects. I'm shaping my analogy, my instance here, and so I'm, I'm telling you it has positive effects on your health. Even if it does, the government is not right to mandate that. And you, therefore, are not compelled to obey. If the government said, you need to go to Colorado each year and go on a hike, in the outdoors, because there are all kinds of positive effects that come from hiking in Colorado. Well, A, that would be wonderful, (laughs) because it would get us to Colorado and to hiking in Colorado, one of my and my family's favorite things to do when we can. But the government has no mandate to do that. Good things are not things that must be mandated for the Christian. We have our own life to steward. If we want to go to Colorado and hike, great, do it. But the government has no authority to demand that we would do so, to mandate that we would do so. And if you yield to government mandates unthinkingly, or even out of a, I would say, wrong interpretation of Romans 13 and love of neighbor neighbor passages, you are actually, I think, wrongly giving up stewardship that has been entrusted to you by God. This is where all this discussion bears down. Seventh and finally, in this epic podcast, if we feel compelled to wear a mask, do so. If you yourself wish to wear a mask in seasons of mask mandates, then I think you should do so. If you feel compelled, if you believe it best, if you think that you are you know, not going to fight this battle, and uh, your conscience is not violated by doing so, I am not here to tell you in this podcast that you are sinning for following a mask mandate. That is not my point here. But if you are not compelled to follow a mask mandate, I want you to hear this. Your body is your own. Your body is God's, and the government does not have authority to rule your body. The government does not have authority to tell you when to go on a walk. The government does not have authority to shape your vacations. The government does not have authority to oversee your diet. The government does not have authority to condition how much bacon you eat in a given month. Those are your decisions. That is because God is our sovereign. God is the one who rules us. Christ is our Lord, and we follow God. We follow God to the fullest possible extent. We follow Caesar 
to the fullest possible extent. But where there are no limitations on following God our sovereign, there are definitely limitations on following Caesar our civic authority. If you wish to wear a mask for any number of reasons, then you can do so. But I do not believe it is correct to claim, to argue, that Romans 13 and Matthew 22, the love of neighbor as the second greatest commandment passage, forces you and me to obey mask mandates. Now, even as I have tried at great length, this is probably the longest podcast I've ever done, and it's my only podcast doing this, tackling this issue in over a year of the church facing this issue. I did not dive into this issue. I did not rush into it. I've tried to think about it and have many conversations about it and read about it and so on and so forth. If you are facing this as a mandate, a whole host of questions now beckons you based on what I have said. If you're convinced by my line of thinking here, that I have not even begun to address. Now we begin to talk about what civil disobedience looks like. Now we have a whole other set of questions that presents themselves to us. And now we have more discussions that we need to have. So I am acknowledging that. I have not wrapped up every detail in a tidy bow. But I do believe that we have strong biblical grounds for understanding that a proper biblical theology of the body and a right understanding of governmental authority, we've only scraped the surface of these two matters, leads us to say we are not compelled to obey mask mandates, just as we are not compelled to obey vaccine mandates. This may put us in difficult positions in days ahead as Christians. Being compelled and constrained by the Scripture, understanding authority rightly in numerous dimensions may well mean hardship for us. But I believe, like Christians throughout American history and church history more broadly, we have a higher calling than many of us have realized. The body is given us from God. Our stewardship is not our own. It is from the Lord, and we must not bow to Caesar where God would call us to obey a higher authority than what our eyes currently see. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.